Life Happens Weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. So what are the root causes of tribalism in South Africa? Who should we blame for it? Because it rears its ugly head from time to time, does it not? Whether a famous personality has referenced something about a particular group. Uh, but we know that, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, tribalism has ruined many parts of the African continent. The apartheid regime has also, uh, it also used various strategies to ensure that South Africans formed a divided nation. It was through the differences between ethnic groups and tribes, among other things, that the government of the time managed to manipulate and entrench hatred and a lack of trust among most black South Africans. Tribalism uh, existed even before apartheid, uh, but it uh, during the apartheid era became instrumental in inflicting divisions as perpetuated by the formations of those homelands. Remember, uh, the Kosas lived in the Transkei and the Siskei, uh, the Tswanas lived in Buputa Tswana and so on and so forth. And the various ethnic groups had been turned really against one another and it had become normalized, um, uh, you know, and some say nepotism is part and parcel of, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the idea of tribalism and it's an extension of it. It's important to deal with tribalism as a tool that plays a part in delaying tribal reconciliation, which was orchestrated by apartheid policies in South Africa. Today, we're asking the question, what are the root causes of tribalism in South Africa? Should we, at this point in time, in our existence, still blame uh, apartheid for it? We invited uh, Professor Moshe uh, who is a former vice chancellor of uh, the University of Venda and member of the Council of the University of South Africa and Anela Sishwana, lecturer and clinical psychologist. Good afternoon to the both of you. Um, I think, Prof, you are the one who's ready um, uh, uh, for me in the studio in Pretoria there. And Anela, I hope you can hear me as well and welcome to you as well. Good afternoon. Thanks very much. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, let's mm. let's start with asking uh, the origins of tribalism, particularly here in South Africa. Where does a tribalism originate from? Am I right to reference it originating around the apartheid era? And maybe, Prof, you can lead us. I think thanks very much, <coughs> firstly, for the invitation. And the, first, I think it's important to say, and we have done a lot of research on this, that nobody knows where the self comes from, the self that defines our personality. Nobody can tell. No research, psychology, whatever can tell where that comes from. But what is available to us is the way the self operates. We know that this thing called the ego, the self, is driven by the search for happiness, for well-being. And usually it, uh, it is constructed around the same language, uh, same place of origin, the same customs, and the same culture. And it takes the form usually of family, collect, of family connections and the community in which you live. That's where it comes from. Now, now, if you look very carefully how it operates, the self is very comfortable with people that speak its language. 
if you are Zulu or Tswana, you are more comfortable with those who speak your language, who come from the same place, who share the same values. It feels threatened by anything that comes out of that social space. If, 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 if he has been born speaking Khoisan, for instance, and something comes from the Khoisan, there's something coming through that is a stranger and it protects itself. That's why we have borders. Even the thing called the state is a way of protecting the, col the collectives. The problem we have is that in South Africa, the self, the difference between people was regarded as antagonistic. There's nothing wrong in being Tswana or Zulu or Tsonga or Kalad because those differences can, are complementary. You can use them to complement each other to make sure that people leaving space is wider, more inclusive. But you can use those boundaries as was done in the apartheid to divide people, to say that if you are African and somebody is colored and Jewish, those differences are antagonistic and they cannot be bridged. That is the problem of apartheid. Mm. But what we are saying that in a democracy, we can remake the self, we can re-educate. It does not mean that if you are Zonga or Venda or Pedi, there's no possibility of you working together, of complementing each other. Mm -hmm. That's why throughout the country, there's growing inter-ethnic marriages because the differences are not fundamental. But the way you are raised and the way you are treated by the state tends to reinforce antagonisms. So although it did not begin with apartheid, apartheid reinforced the antagonistic aspect of the self. Mm -hmm. It told us that if you are born African, there's no way in which you can live together with Africaners. It was an antagonism built into our politics. And unfortunately, during the days of apartheid, that antagonism was, was supported by a distorted Calvinism that, you know, wise were, you know, ordained to, to come to Africa and educate us. What can be done now? Now that we know that this thing we call the self or the ethnic self is made by society, is made by politics, mm. is made by religion. We can decide how to reconfigure these tribal differences mm. and mm. educate our kids that you may speak a different language, but languages are translatable. And so the identities of them can merge and reinforce and enrich. So it is within our powers to re-educate, to re-socialize the self. And this is what, unfortunately, when we demarcated the new republic and turned it into nine provinces, most of the provinces coincided with homeland boundaries. Yeah, yeah. So unfortunately, the current provincial dispensation reinforces and continued apartheid hostilities. Yeah. 
And that's why throughout the country, whether it is in Popo or KZN, there's now an upsurge of what I want to call ethnic nationalisms. Let's stay there. Let's stay with that ethnic nationalism. Uh, I want to go to a quick commercial break and then come back to talk about how come we aren't progressing swiftly towards the reconfiguration of uh, this ethnic nationalization as the Prof is uh, is, uh, referring to it as. We'll come back. We're talking to Annelies Siswana, lecturer and clinical psychologist and Professor Mushen Kondo, former Vice Chancellor of the University of Venda and member of the Council of the University of South Africa. At issue is tribalism. It's 21 minutes past one on SAFM. Here, there and everywhere. SAFM 105 FM in Mokobane. Welcome back to SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide. We're having a discussion around the issues of tribalism. What are the root causes of tribalism in South Africa? And how can we reconfigure ourselves to be a non-tribalistic society? And before we went to break, uh, Professor Mushan Kondo, uh, the former vice chancellor of the University of Venda and member of uh, the Council of the University of South Africa, made a poignant point around the design of the very provinces that uh, we refer to uh, in South Africa today, they may have been renamed, but to a large extent, what the prof is saying is that they re uh, they reinstill the ideal, uh, if you can use that word, that the apartheid was trying to reinforce around tribalism because uh, you know uh, the Kosa people of the Saskai and the Transkai still stay in the Eastern Cape, the Zwana people of the former Zwana still geographically stay in the the same space. How do we then, Anele, uh, as I bring you into the co- conversation now, how come we are not progressing swiftly uh, towards the reconfiguration of tribalism and staying within the grip of this ethnic nationalization that the professor made reference to earlier? Um, I think what professor highlighted um, really speaks to the historical and academic understanding of how we think about um, tribalism and all the aspects that are around it. And so for me, from a psychological perspective, I also concur with Trump that it has a lot to do with social construction. And social construction, which is about the idea, the way we see the world, starts from very particular nuances of how we are introduced to certain ways of thinking Mm. around um, ethnicity and around... um, all the other kind of um, intersectionalities. But social construction then helps us to understand that if the mentality of how closer people are constructed and how closer people make sense of who they are is within particular rituals and particular aspects. For instance, if you take a young man um, within the context of an closer into initiation school, the idea it reinforces that a different kind of masculinity is above them. Mm. 
Um, I, I think we, we lost Analysis Siswana or the line uh, he's using is not that good, but we're going to try and get him back because I think that's a, a poignant point he's making about um, the ritual of going to the mountain um, and issues of masculinity, particularly for uh, the Kosa people. We all know what happened uh, when the movie Ngleba, for example, came out and the impact uh, that it had, particularly amongst uh, Kosa people who didn't just see the movie as, you know, a love story that deals with binaries, uh, but were offended at the fact that something that is pivotal to their culture uh, was being spoken about in tones and nuances that did not make their culture comfortable. Uh, Why is it, Prof, as we try and get Anele back, why is it that every time, um, from time to time, these spring ups, there'll be either images of people who are prominent wearing T-shirts that say, for example, 100% Zulu, or there will be a public personality uh, who will reinforce a stereotype about, for example, uh, Kosa people. Uh, But the first thing that you will see, particularly with this evil called social media, uh, because it's a plus and it's a minor social media uh, a lot of people will jump to say yes you're right we are 100% that or yes you're right closer people are whatever it is that you said they are and only in hindsight uh, when there's a cry out for tribalism people are like oh okay uh, perhaps in hindsight we may not have been right but the most uh, innate instinct is for people to say yes indeed you're right our tribe is best yeah, I think firstly, uh, I would like to suggest that uh, uh, there's nothing instinctive about tribalism. It is something that is made. Mm, made it's designed. Policies make tribalism. For instance, just now, why it is so sharp now, even, you know, you know gender violence, is that this thing you call the self becomes very insecure and very aggressive when there are scarce resources. Mm. The problem just now is that individuals and communities are battling for scarce resources. And if you are battling for scarce resources, your first responsibility is with your children, your family, and the people close to you, Mm. which is the ethnic tribe. Yeah. In communities where the economy is not that bad, there's very little tribalism. For example, in the Scandinavian countries, for instance. Yeah. This is accentuated by the economic crisis, by the fight for scarce resources. When our comrades, some of them very senior, come from prison and from exile, when they come back here and they lead departments, they lead those departments like bantu stands. Mm. If you look at the allocation of, of projects, of tenders, of resources, you find a considerable percentage goes to the, to the tribe or the community that is associated with the head of the department. Mm. There's been research done at UCT. How the allocation of resources is determined by, by not by not by you know a need, mm. but by 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 ethnic bonds. Mm, mm. If I'm you, going if, to take if, care of my own. Yeah, if you appoint somebody as a DG, in eighteen months, according to research, over sixty percent of that department is filled by people from his tribe. Mm. 
If you look at the allocation of, of tenders, projects, over 70% of the tenders go back to that village where the DG comes from. Wow. And this is, this is sharpened because of the crisis in the economy. If, if the economy was flourishing, it, would not, it wouldn't matter whether you're Zulu or Zonga or Kalat. It wouldn't matter. But because we are fighting for scarce resources, this becomes very critical. Now, what should be done? Okay. Okay. Pause there because we have to go to news headlines. What should be done? Because even uh, the distribution of resources uh, at governmental level ends up still entrenching the issue of uh, uh, tribalism. Uh, We also have Anela Siswana back and we're in conversation with Professor Mucha Nkondo and Anela Siswana and at heart, uh, at the heart of the discussion we're having today is tribalism and how we can find a way to root it out. It's half past one. It's time for the news headlines. Lines with Kanyisile Magnoni. Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 106.1 FM in Bombela. 131 on SAFM 104 to 107. Let's try and uh, find a way to make sure that uh, we've wrapped up this discussion by at least uh, 140. Uh, and maybe I bring you in, Anele, uh, for us to start talking how to eradicate even uh, tribalism, uh, how to arrest it, because it's ethnic nationalism, as the professor said earlier. Anele? to start. Hello? Yes, I can hear you now. Hello? I can hear yes, you I now. From Mark. All right. I think one of the ways of uprooting the dealing with this is to redefine and rethink um, the concept of ethnicity and, and tribalism in relation to that. And to understand that ethnicity and, and, and tribalism, it's not a homogeneous thing. And that it's not something that is, can be applied as a blanket statement because it plays out in particular ways in each and every context. Mm. And so if we redefine that in, that in relation to what Professor was talking about into, into the state, into how we, we work around governance and all of these other things, they can be very policy, but the way in which you understand them, um, and one of the most powerful tools in people is to work with traditional leaders who they have these systems in place. They are the ones who can help us to rethink and redefine what tribalism means and how it can be managed. At the same time, the very same social media is a very powerful um, tool that can channel the ways in which we talk about tribalism, the ways in which we challenge the dominant constructions of what has been um, perpetuated in the media about certain particular ethnic groups. Yeah, but the very same uh, social media, Anele, you'll agree, sometimes is a big entrencher of tribalism. Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, because remember, it's the most accessible tool that people can use. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can, in a very subtle, unconscious or subconscious way, one may try to communicate whatever that they want to communicate. As mm-hmm. we have seen, it's been evident mm-hmm. that at some point, one is not intentional about posting whatever that they post. Like, for instance, the, one of the Unati's um, comments that she made about closer people. Um, and again, last year's way of thinking about Amakosa really inculcated and pushed the idea of tribalism. We may not have thought of it in that way, but because social media wrapped it into our faces, 
then we were alarmed and took action to think this causes a problem in the way in which you engage in society. Mm. How do we then address the ethnic nationalism, uh, Professor Mushankondo? How do we uh, say, um, you know, uh, the self is homozo, I am worldly, I have ambitions to be uh, merely a citizen of the world, I care about all of my environment, uh, not only where it is that I come from, I have ambitions to be impactful to all of Africa, not just my corner. I want to suggest six very practical things that we could do. Mm. The first one is has to do with leadership. As individuals and as groups, we tend to shape our behavior in line with the behavior of our leaders. Mm. But if a DG or a minister allocates resources on tribal lines he distorts the entire policy landscape mm-hmm. so leadership is critical the second thing is that you know we should integrate these insights into the curriculum both at basic and high education level it should be integrated into curriculum into forms of teaching and forms of assessment it should just come as an afterthought or in a workshop. It should be integral to teaching and learning on a daily. That's how we begin to shape consciousness at that level. And then thirdly, something that I've been talking about for some time now. The school on its own, the state on its own, can change tribal consciousness. It has to start in the family. The family, the, the parenting, that's where consciousness begins. That's where feelings and attitudes are germinated. So, it, so I am suggesting that the family now must be regarded as part of the state apparatus to educate, to sensitize kids at a very, very, you know, early level. That's important. So the family should become, you know, a police instrument. Mm. The fourth thing is the media. The most corrosive instrument of society is the media Mm. because it's commercialized, it's after profit, and not after sensibility, not after the moral imagination. So a way we must find when the state regulates the media in such a way, not because it not, not to center it, but to introduce an ethical dimension into communication strategies. That's mm. important because most of our kids are much more in the media than they are elsewhere. So the media is becoming very, very powerful. Let's find a way of infusing these insights and these abilities into the media. The final one is that, uh, is that uh, uh, you must, you know, the only way you can, you, you can, you can, one of the ways of say you are Zulu, you are Kosi, you are Songo, you are Venda, is to begin countrywide establishing inter-ethnic communities, hmm. workshops, alliances, networks, so that we, we create an inter-ethnic space, particularly for our kids, where they learn to talk to each other across language, across culture, across those, you know, those five, uh, five instruments, among others could going well in beginning to change our consciousness and point in a new direction. The state is critical. And the state in this case 
is the leader who must point the way, show the way, behave in, in non-ethnic ways, and not do what they do now, reinforce tribalism. And I think uh, that's a great place to leave it at. And I will thank you very much, uh, Professor Mushangondo, uh, former Vice Chancellor of, of the University of Venda and a member of the Council of the University of South Africa. You've given us a lot to think about and hopefully implement. And thank you also to you, uh, Anela Siswana, lecturer and a clinical psychologist. And we hope uh, we can see some of your tweets, by the way. I mean, SMSs, there's one that came from Madoda who said, uh, the cultures are the, uh, the biggest causes of tribal as I can detect. Thank you very much for your SMS. But more than anything, I hope that in this discussion we forced you to think about how you as an individual uh, respond to the issue of tribalism. And I think there was something very poignant that the prof said about how uh, families can re-engineer this whole thing uh, to be different. Uh, That's Professor Mushan Kondo and uh, Anela Siswana. That's it. That's our talk on tribalism today. And it's time for the Kids Call. Uh, for today. Tomorrow is a big day for little ones and for not so little ones. They all are going back to school. I'm sure there's a lot of anxieties uh, in different households around South Africa. Uh, some excited, some not so excited. So we gathered the little ones uh, who are very important to us here and we asked them the big question. What is your biggest fear about going back to school?